Welcome back to Owned and Operated, where we dive deep into the businesses we own, the businesses we are acquiring, and we also bring on guests to talk about their operating struggles. If you like what you hear today, follow John and Brandon on Twitter. That's John at Wilson Companies and Brandon at Brandon Niro. Also, check out our weekly newsletter where we teach you how to be an effective operator. You can sign up by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or by visiting ownedandoperated.com. That's ownedandoperated.com. Check it out. Joining John on today's podcast is Greg Moran. Greg currently runs his own podcast called The Founder's Journey. He started in the music industry and realized it wasn't for him. Then 13 years ago, he started a company called Check.com. Today, he has moved to again work with early stage founders and started a venture fund called Evergreen Mountain Equity Partners that focuses on the future of work. Here, he works with founders starting companies that are really going to define the next generation of work. Tune in as Greg and John discuss his vision for the future of this very new venture fund he just started in January of 2022. He's got a ways to goes to get there, but he has the excitement and steps in place to get to where he wants to be. Enjoy the show. If you run a home service business like painting, plumbing, lawn care, or cleaning, you know the work never ends. Customer service, hiring staff, mountains of paperwork, the to-do list goes on and on. And plus, you still have to actually do the work to pay your bills. Running your entire business with pen and paper is hard and messy. You know you need a system to stay on top of everything so that nothing falls through the cracks. Jobber is a mobile and online app that helps keep your business organized and looking more professional than ever. With Jobber, you can quote jobs, schedule your crew, send invoices, and accept payments online all in one place. You won't know how you ran your business without it. Jobber offers free one-on-one coaching to help you get started. No software experience is required. Get paid on time, go paperless, and impress your customers. Try it free today at Get jobber.com backslash OAO. It's no secret that Brandon and I have cleaned up a lot of poop in our career. Unfortunately, we don't clean up crappy bookkeeping. That's where today's sponsor comes in. Apple Tree Business Services handles bookkeeping, payroll, and taxes for small businesses. Apple Tree Business Services is the go-to choice for growing service companies so they can manage cash flow, know their numbers, and save on taxes. Their U.S.-based team has taken care of small business bookkeeping and taxes since 2005. Find them online at appletreebusiness.com or email patrick at appletreebusiness.com. Welcome back to Owned and Operated. Today, I have Greg Moran on with me. Welcome, Greg. Hey, John. Appreciate you having me on and happy to be on. Happy to be talking with you today. Yeah, this will be good. This is going to be a good one. Greg, how about you get the audience introduced with what you're up to and, and what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I guess you could probably characterize me as a serial entrepreneur. Started my first business after a very bizarre start in the music industry, decided that the music industry was not where I wanted to go and executive recruiting is where I was going. So, you know, started my first business back a number of years ago and, you know, have grown a few along the way, had, you know, but most recently started a company back 13 years ago called Checked.com. And we started in a little town up in upstate New York called Saratoga Springs, New York, if anybody knows that, best known for its horse racing, but it also incubated a little startup up there called Checked. Over the years, over 13 years, we managed to build that company pretty significantly from, you know, really a PowerPoint presentation and really a flat-footed start, you know, through one of the leaders in the digital transformation of hiring for, you know, really large global companies around the world, companies like Disney and American Airlines and Subway restaurants and a lot of really great brands like that used our technology to make hiring faster, but most importantly, more predictable and bringing in talent. So did that for 13 years, wound down as the CEO of that, finally back this October and decided that what I wanted to do is get back with earlier stage founders again and started a venture fund focused on future of work. So that's where my background was. And and that venture fund is called Evergreen Mountain Equity Partners. And you know, we're a relatively small, highly specialized fund that works with founders that are starting companies that are really going to define the next generation of work on a global level. How many people are on the team? 
at Evergreen. We're really small. Today, we've got five of us. There's four partners, four partners in the fund and an analyst, but we're sort of the definition of future work, right? We're really, you know, we're very much a remote and freelanced organization. So we've, you know, our analyst is a freelancer. We've got freelancers that are, you know, supporting us from an administrative side and from a fund administration side. So, but about five of us today. So it's pretty small. Hmm. And how big is the fund? It's about a $20 million fund. And, you know, we are doing, we're primarily looking at, I would call it seed plus to series A kind of deals. So, you know, we're really coming in when a company has some revenue, but they don't have to have a lot, you know, so we're really looking at very early stage. They've proven their ability to take a product to market. And we're really there to typically be the first institutional money coming in, but also because it is highly specialized, we're really kind of we almost have almost like a hybrid PE model in a lot of ways, right? Where even though we're investing at an early stage, we can come in with the resources and the experience and the network and things like that that can really accelerate a company's growth if they're, you know, if they're showing that momentum, we can really kind of drive them probably faster than they at least the way it was when I started, right? Which was, you know, if I wanted yeah. to get a contact to somebody who, you know, to get an integration done or a partnership or something, it took me, you know six months and 300 calls of driving somebody insane before I got a return phone call back. And we try to bring that down to one phone call in 10 minutes. If we can. Yeah. Yeah. And how many companies, is it portfolio companies? Is that how you're defining them? How many portfolio yeah. companies do you guys have? Yeah, we are brand new. We actually just launched the fund formally in January. Oh, and yeah, so it's really new. I just, I was the CEO of Check.com. I never actually mentioned this. Check.com became a company called Outmatch, which then recently rebranded as Harvard. So over 13 years, we've taken on a couple of brands. So, but I just wound down my role as CEO there in October. We launched this fund in January. And so we will, by the end of next week, we will have our third portfolio company in, you know, which we're super excited about. Yeah. When you're doing seed, like the advantage of starting that early is you get more of the pie, right? You're taking a higher risk so you can take more of the equity? Yeah. I mean, theoretically, yes. However, the way that it really works is, you know, we're coming in and the companies that we're funding are early stage, right? Mm-hmm. And they will typically need to raise. We're coming in at the C, maybe Series A level. You know, all the terms on this stuff have blended together. So it's, you know, it's hard to tell whatever somebody calls around, but we're coming <laughs> in early. And, you know, we're usually coming in at somewhere between 250 to maybe a million and a half, right, on our check. But we'll also lead larger rounds as well. So, I mean, total round, maybe two or $3 million. It's sometimes a little bit larger than that. But what ends up happening is, you know, as the business grows, our job is to essentially be the feeder to larger venture funds and larger PE funds, right? So what we want to do is essentially help them sort of mature the product to market fit, help them mature their operating systems and process and start to bring them to scale. So call that maybe a few million in ARR up to call it 10 million in ARR. And then our job is to really keep the path clear so that we can bring in you know, a much larger fund that can really then write the 20, 30, 50, $100 million check, whatever that is, to really provide them the massive fuel. So you know, we may be in absolute terms taking a larger percentage. I mean, we're typically, our target is somewhere, you know, around the 20% range is really what we look for, maybe a little bit lower than that in some cases, but that's going to get heavily diluted over the whole period of the, you know, for the most successful companies over the whole period of that investment and the whole periods can be fairly considerable. So, you know, our job is to try to keep investing, you know, in those great companies and invest alongside, you know, much larger funds. So we're the machine that's trying to generate enough of the fuel for the large funds to step in. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. So, you know, roughly you get around 20% and then on the next, you trade up to the next guy. Are you able to co-invest? Is that always written in? So, I mean, we certainly try to, I can't imagine us. We've never had a scenario. Well, you know, out of my vast four months of experience, (laughs) we haven't had a scenario yet where we haven't. And honestly, from a founder perspective, they want us co-investing, right? Because yeah. again, we're- well, they helped you in the journey. They were there from the beginning. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. There's a loyalty factor. And honestly, there's an expertise factor. A lot of the large funds don't have that kind of sector expertise that we can bring yeah. in. So we can still continue to add value over the life of that journey with them. It's hard to envision a scenario where we wouldn't want to continue to co-invest if we believe you know, that the company has real strong growth potential. Yeah. I'm sorry for asking what's probably the basic VC. No. I don't think I've ever had someone 
like in VC currently on the show. So I'm just like, what else do I want to know about VC? <laughs> I got to get this out. I'm glad to be the first. Keep firing away. No problem yeah, at all. It's always like we've had a few folks that sort of do the anti-VC thing where they are investing in tech companies, but not to get a venture-backed outcome. It's to get like a sustainable $10 million a year company. Absolutely. So we've had two or three of those. We had someone on who got venture-backed, which was interesting, off his business, Ryan Young. I don't remember what episode number that was, but that was interesting. Okay, yeah, what else do I want to know about venture? You know what's funny while you're thinking of it? The reason we got into venture, the reason that my business partner and I got into venture is because we've been operators, right? I had been a portfolio company CEO for multiple venture firms and for private equity, two different private equity firms. And, you know, we had seen this from both sides, right? And we, neither my partner nor I have, you know, the typical pedigree of a VC coming in, right? You just, you think of VC and they've got usually the Ivy League degree and MBA from an Ivy League school. And they're, you know, they're coming in sort of through those ranks as an investment banker or something like that. Now there's anything wrong with that career path. I mean, it's certainly, you know, one that can be highly lucrative and, you know, really great for somebody. We didn't come in, right? From that. I mean, both my business partner and I joke about this all the time. We graduated from like state schools in New York. And, mm-hmm. you know, we went out and we sort of ground our way into building successful companies, normally, mostly because of just trying to be dumb enough to follow everybody else's lead, right? And not try to make this stuff up. And we managed to kind of, we managed to sort of grind our way there. It's just not the typical pedigree, but I think, you know, what's interesting when you look at VC, when you talk about like anti-VC versus VC, we are VCs, but we tend to be kind of that anti-VC sort of mindset, right? We're not going out looking for the next unicorn. We don't need to do that to produce a nice return for our limited partners. What we're really trying to do is provide, you know, a significant amount of value to early stage founders and to build something really special. And there's a lot of directions that can go, right? And if you look at my own company, and I know we're going to get into this, you know, we didn't follow, we were a VC-backed company, but we didn't follow a traditional VC playbook at all. We ended up buying, you know, our way to high growth. And we did most of that through MA. That's not the typical VC playbook, but it worked. And, you know, so I think we are really open about the multiple paths that a founder can take because that's the path that we took. So I think that's the beauty of coming in from an operator mindset as opposed to the traditional. You know, I can model this on a spreadsheet 12 different ways and it looks great until, you know, the first time, like I just joked about, until the first time we try to call a prospect and they mm-hmm. walk right back. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. And I'm into that. I like it. I think if I did, we've done two startup investments. It's exciting. Like it's intoxicating, right? Oh, totally. Because you're like, you know, what could happen? What could this be? How can I help? How can I, you know, yep. be a small part of whatever this journey is? And then you sort of remember that <laughs> the chances are very against it going <laughs> anywhere. But maybe with a fund, you know, that's better than as an individual investor where what you need like two or three winners and that sort of carries the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, yes, is the answer, right? I mean, you know, when you look at how to maximize returns on a fund, you know, you're typically going to have this bell curve, right? And it's just, you know, if we can keep 60% of our companies in the money over the long term, we're doing great, right? And that when I say, you know, like in the money, basically like they're in business, right? And, you know, they're making money of some form. And, you know, you're going to have kind of that middle curve that's going to go out and they're going to produce extraordinary companies and they're going to do it with a two to three X return for us, which is fantastic. You know, and for the founder, for us, I mean, that's perfectly okay. You are in some ways looking for that, you know, those one or two that really can hit sort of the stratospheric levels. You don't have to have it, right? And I think that, you know, there's much to be made of when you look at big VC funds and they're truly playing a portfolio management approach, right? They're just out, they're investing in hundreds of companies. They're not really actively engaged. They say they are, but they're just sitting on the board and they're really not adding any value or anything like that. And, you know, you do have to do that. When you're a specialized fund and you're really diving in, we can create a market in a lot of ways for a company that may be struggling where a traditional VC would just write them off. Yeah, that makes sense. I appreciate the explanation. I'm going at your career backwards. We're going to get to the deal where you bought something four times your size, but <laughs> I want to go back to just December. Yeah. Winding down from the CEO position. Can you walk yep. me through that? I mean, that sounds like obviously a big thing professionally, a big thing personally. It was your journey for 13 years. Walk me through it. Yeah, it was. 
I think a lot of it, I'm still sort of digesting the speed of it, right? So, you know, we started, like I said, we started this business as a PowerPoint presentation 13 years ago. And, you know, over the years, we had raised multiple rounds of capital. We had done a lot of acquisitions. You know, we had grown the business really well. And actually, March 2020, which was like the most bizarre time in human history to go out and actually sell your company to private equity, we did. We closed that transaction on March 1st, 2020. I live in Denver, outside of Denver, Colorado, but our office was in Dallas and I was commuting every week down to Dallas. But it just turns out the private equity firm who purchased us is just a terrific firm. I love these guys. Can't recommend them highly enough called Rubicon Technology Partners. Coincidentally, they're in Boulder, which is like 40 minutes from my house. You know, So we closed the transaction on March 1st and I fly down to Dallas with the partners from Rubicon and we do a company-wide meeting and everybody's there. And this is like maybe March 3rd. Right. And we do this company wide meeting, and there's this whole thing about coronavirus going on and all this stuff. But everyone's like, God, I don't know. You know, it seems bad, but, you know, but we're all there and we do it. And I left our Dallas office that day for the last time without knowing that was the last time. I mean, I went back to like pick up stuff in like July or something like that, but that was it. It was over. And I stayed on as the CEO at that point. We started doing a number of acquisitions through that time. Rubicon was terrific at, you know, during that to really sort of back the company. This was a tough, tough period for us. Our clients were restaurants, retail, hospitality, and airlines. Like if you want to try to find yeah. a global pandemic and be in a worse place, that's where it is, right? But they got really aggressive. We all did and started doing a lot of acquisitions. So did a large acquisition, a really transformative acquisition for a company in Amsterdam back in last April called Harvor. And the company Outmatch, which the company is now rebranded as Harvor. So I was actually living in Amsterdam for most of 2021. Right now, while I'm talking to you, I'm sitting in Livingston, Montana. My two kids who go to Montana State University, not too far from here up in Bozeman. So every time my wife and I wanted to see our kids, we would fly from Amsterdam to Bozeman, Montana. Now you try to figure out what that flight looks like. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> and you know, honestly, it had been 13 years and it was, you know, it was really grinding and it was sort of that inflection point for the company. And I think where I had to be honest with myself, right? And say, I mean, at this point, we had about 50 million in revenue. We had 300 people all over the world. I was traveling constantly still. And, you know, it just wasn't that much fun anymore, right? I'm an early stage founder guy and there are people, and we found one of them, fortunately, there are people that are out there that can do that job as CEO of that company so much better than I could ever dream of doing. And I had a, you know, there's a lot of soul searching involved in that, right? To kind of take it to that point. But that's really where it got was, look, I'm just not the guy. I, I'm still on the board and I'm still a large investor. And, but I just was not the guy to lead that company anymore. I, I wasn't the right person to do it and I wasn't enjoying it. And, you know, fortunately we went out, we started a search. Rubicon was fantastic about it. We started a search, went out and found, you know, an incredible new CEO, you know, to run that business. Who's just doing an unbelievable job today. Who's, you know, I joke all the time. He's like a real CEO, right? <laughs> Where I was the founder CEO who managed to kind of, you know, grind their way to that role, you know, over a lot of years. Yeah. So that was it. It was more of a, you know, very personal decision. Yeah. It sounds like I see that decision on my horizon. I think I've talked about this on the show where I'm still having fun, but I'm having fun because we're engaging in M&A. But soon, and probably very soon, M&A is going to be the least important thing to our business, right? It, it's going to be process. It's going to be standardization. It's going to be all the things that I really don't want to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That is literally like, you know, what you just said was exactly where I was. I mean, verbatim, you could have just replaced my face with yours and that was it. Nice. I loved M&A. I was doing all the M&A. I had a great time doing it. I was stacking one company on top of each other. The problem was the integration part kind of sucked. And <laughs> it does. You know, the process <laughs> just was all that stuff. It's like you get like, you know, sort of the heroin. Yeah. I think we we're just on audio. We could see me sort of smacking my wrist with the. I know, totally the saw it. And I got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you, you know, gotta, yeah, you got to go do the next one. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I struggled with that for a long time because, you know, you see the Zuckerbergs and all of that, the founder CEO, who's the CEO still like, you know, however many billions. And I mean, you're right. I think you made the right decision. From knowing you for the last 20 minutes, I think you made the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> that means a lot. I appreciate it. <laughs> I know. You got on here to hear that, I'm sure. But I think there's this like heroization or something of the founder CEO that still runs their company. And like the reality is like, you're probably the wrong guy 
like you, anybody, like Absolutely. you're not it. Like just because you made the company, just because you got it to where it is, it's the same with team members. Like whoever got you here might not get you there. And I know that I've got a limit. We haven't hit it yet, it, but I see it. That's totally it, right? We talk all the time, you know, and, you know, when I'm doing any kind of coaching for a CEO or, you know, just working with a portfolio company or just kind of chatting with anybody, right? We talk all the time about, you know, we understand the need to top grade our talent over a course of time in our company because what got you from one stage is not necessarily what's going to get you from another. But it's really funny. You talk to most CEOs about that, like founder CEOs, and immediately, you know, they're like squirming around in their seat. They're like pulling on their hair. They're like, you know, tapping anything that they could because it's an uncomfortable conversation. It's like your own mortality, right? In a lot of ways, you know, for a founder, it's probably way scarier than your own mortality in a lot of ways, right? And but it's very real. We all have that ceiling. It's not to say you can't force your way over it. You know, I probably could have stayed in that role. I probably could have done an adequate job to get me through and probably not have gotten fired. I don't know. Maybe Rubicon would disagree, but, you know, <laughs> but who knows? They're probably saying, you know, if they're listening, they're probably saying, oh, what's talk about? We're going to fire them the next day, right? <laughs> but, you know, I probably could have continued to manage my way through it, but I didn't want to. And because I didn't want to, I wasn't going to be good at that. That's just the hard thing because, you know, as founders, we just, our self-identities are so tied up in our companies. And at some point, I don't know, I'm 49 years old. Maybe I just kind of grew out of that, but it's a hard decision for sure. Yeah. How long did it take to find the CEO? About three months. And then you sort of incubated them for a year? No. I mean, I still continue to talk to him. I'm on the board and everything, but no CEO came in from outside. And the day he started was the day I wasn't doing it. So, you know, still, you know, he's become a good friend and you know, we chat and, but no, I didn't incubate him at all. He, if anything, he took the reins and ran, which is exactly what we wanted to do. Yeah. I've always wondered about the CEO transition. It seems like I don't know which is better. And honestly, like it's the same thing as buying a company probably where it makes sense for the seller to not be there anymore. That's probably the same thing with CEOs, but it also like, it's such a big position. How do you not incubate them? Like, how do they not sit there for a year? And I don't know, like, Obviously, you did it one way. What's your take? You know, every instinct in me. So when this happened, you know, when I went to Rubicon and said, hey, yeah, I think the time is here. Let's do a transition. I think that was on a Wednesday. And I think my last day was on Friday because Rubicon's position on it, which I have come to adamantly agree with was, okay, if we're going to do this, there's got to be the runway, right? We've got to give this person the opportunity without interference to go do what they're going to do. And I absolutely agree with that approach. I think I've seen a lot of founders who try to hang on and you see this at a public level. I mean, in a lot of ways you see this, I don't know, like today, if you've been following a lot of what's going on at like Disney, right? Where, you know, you see this a lot today at a public level, but you also see it, you know, on a smaller level where you've got founders who say, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to help this person and I'm going to teach them everything I know when really, you know, what they need is to get control. What they need is to get you out of their way. I saw this so often, John, with companies that we acquired, right? Where the founder would say, well, let me hang on and I'm going to try to help you out and I'm going to stay in here for six months. And I'm going to do, and I could tell you every single time it went bad. And it wasn't that they were bad people in any way at all. It wasn't that they had ill intentions, but I had a vision for what I needed to go do. And I needed to go execute on that. What I didn't need was somebody that was telling me, hey, yeah, but this isn't the way that it worked. And I'll tell you, had I not left when I did, had Scott, the new CEO, not stepped in and had a clear runway, I would have been that guy. And I wouldn't have ever meant it. I would have thought I was helping him, right? It would have never been you know, with any ill intention, but I would have been that guy. I know I would have, yeah. right? Because yeah. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was helping him. I thought I was kind of, you know, or I thought I would have been, I fortunately- wasn't in that position. I have rarely ever seen long transitions work well in that CEO role. That makes sense. That makes sense. I don't think I'd ever thought about it really until you sort of shared your story. I just assumed there'd be a long transition. And maybe that's because I'm a control freak. <laughs> okay. I'm going to think more on that one. <laughs> I need to do some introspection here. That's right. Yeah. That's right. All right. So I appreciate you sharing that story. I'm sure the yeah, audience yeah. will be into it. I know I personally am going to think a lot on it. Let's dive into M&A. So you guys bought a bunch of stuff. Yep. Yep. How much did you buy? What'd you buy? Why'd you do it? Oh, man. I think over the life of the business, we probably did 11 or 12 transactions, something like that. 
started very early. I mean, we were like, you know, maybe $100,000 in ARR when we did our first acquisition. It was crazy. But, you know, there's a couple of things. And well, let me tell you about the acquisition and sort of how we got on that path. But, you know, from that point, like I said, I think we did 11 or 12. Most of them, so our industry, you know, was sort of what I sort of identify as or what I've called talent selection. But really what we were was a pre-employment testing company. We did pre-employment assessment, right? Now, I'm sure everybody that's listening right now has taken some form of pre-employment test or some sort of psychological test at some point in their career, right? Whether it's like Myers-Briggs or Predictive Index or, you know, there's a million of them out there. And that's what we provided, but we provided it to large companies at scale. And, you know, that industry is an interesting one because it's long been the domain of industrial psychologists who, you know, the model itself was not particularly scalable. It was very much typically like almost a tech-enabled service, right? You had a bunch of IO psychologists who would write a test, but, you know, it was still very manual, very consulting heavy. And we wanted to change that. And we had a very modern platform that could accommodate all different kinds of tests and we could bring them on there. And we sort of stumbled into this model early on where, hey, look, there's a lot of companies that are out there doing it in this really labor-intensive way. They're charging companies on a per-test basis where companies want to be charged on a SaaS subscription and you know, not have to pay for every single test so they can do it earlier in the hiring process. So we started actually buying these companies, these IO psychologist-led businesses, and rolling them up is essentially what we were doing. And we had a really successful model with that. We were building that, you know, where we could go in, we could acquire these companies, we could get most of their clients onto our platform in 90 days or, you know, some 120 days. And the clients were happy. The clients actually ended up paying less because they were paying on a per test basis. So they're usually paying somewhere around a third less than they were before. And they're getting unlimited use of the software and it's fully automated. So it was like a, you know, talk about win-win, right? I mean, everybody kind of loved this. You know, we gave liquidity to the founders and it was a good model. And so we did a lot of that back in the early days. And as we got larger, then we started kind of expanding the scope of what we could provide because at that point, now we had maybe a thousand customers or a couple thousand customers on our platform. We said, hey, we can start to sell more stuff to these same customers. So we started really building out a full talent selection platform. So then our strategy morphed from this roll-up strategy into more adding on different products that we could deliver into our client base, all within talent selection. So, you know, that was our strategy. It, you know, it proved out really well. I mean, we, you know, deployed hundreds of millions into MA over the years. And, you know, we got pretty good at, you know, building kind of an MA machine over more than a decade. But it was sort of in the DNA of our business. I mean, I had done MA in my past life and my board you know, at the time was very well-versed in M&A and not afraid of it at all. And, you know, they really pushed me to think, you know, just not be afraid of it. And even though at that point, you know, we were young really as a company when we did our first couple, but, you know, they weren't afraid to try to use it to achieve scale pretty quickly. And it worked fantastically well. This was a PE company that owned you at that time. No, actually, these were a couple small VCs at the time. I mean, this was, and, you know, a couple kind of high net worth individuals at this point. So, you know, that were involved. But I think, you know, what we had, and I think this is a point that I've talked to a lot of founders about, right? At an early stage, we were just so fortunate to have a few people on our board, Martin Babinick being one. And if you've never had, Martin, I don't know if you ever, if you know Martin or have had him on the show, but Martin is a fascinating guy. And he founded a company called Trinet. Trinet is now, I think, they're the largest PEO in the world. They're public traded New York Stock mm-hmm. Exchange, huge company. Martin was the founder and CEO. And I just read about him. Yeah, there's a lot written about him. He's a fascinating oh, guy. Oh, he's in Small Giants. He is. He's featured in, yeah, and Bo. That's yeah, brilliant. I literally was just reading that book over the weekend. That's yeah, funny. yeah. Okay. Well, Martin is one of my closest friends in the world, has been a mentor for me for so long. And he was one of my first investors and on my board. And he was a guy who really kind of helped, you know, facilitate this and just said, look, you don't, you know, we're small, but we don't have to act small. Right. And, you know, we can act bigger and we can do bigger things if we allow ourselves to do it. And so that is really what got us, you know, because of that sort of DNA, that's what got us on that path. And Interestingly, and I know we're going to get there, it also led to really what was the most transformative acquisition in the history of the company, which was, you know, we were a couple million dollars in ARR 
And we went out and we bought a company that was, you know, almost 10 million in ARR. All because Martin had said to me one day, hey, you know, they kept coming to us and saying, hey, we want to acquire you guys, except they were growing at like 20%. We were growing at like 120%. And we, we were never going to be able to get there on the valuation. And Martin just one day said to me, you know, I think we were in a board meeting or just a phone call or something, said to me, well, why don't we just go buy them? And I said, Martin, that's ridiculous. Like, we're $2 million. Like, how? We can't go buy it. Like, these guys are four or five times our size. We can't go do that. And Martin said, why? I said, because we don't have enough money. Martin said, who says? <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of the way that that whole thing started. And, you know, we ended up doing this acquisition. And, you know, in one afternoon, you know, on August 6th of 2015, I only remember the date because August 6th is also my birthday. We went from 2 million in ARR to 10 plus. And, you know, it was crazy. 15, you know, just a band of 15 people trying to build something from scratch to 60, 70 people, which was just a huge leap, which just set everything else in. Yeah. Yeah. Like what number deal was that? It was probably the third, I think. Okay. So still like fairly new into M&A being ingrained in your organization. It was, but we had sort of stumbled on this strategy of this kind of, I mean, you know, to call it a roll up is probably overstating the formality of it, but that's essentially what we were doing, right? We were going out and rolling these companies up. So, you know, the model was already, we were already thinking in those terms, but, mm-hmm. you know, and that's actually what that transaction was. So we acquired a company in Dallas called Assess Systems. And that's actually what that transaction was. It was a roll-up. They were just much bigger than we were. That's all. But it was the exact same strategy. It was just, they were larger. You know, so it didn't kind of break the model that we were trying to build. It just, it really dramatically accelerated the model. I've got a couple different things I want to say on this. And then like, I'll dive into questions, but first off, I love it. I think that's sweet. (laughs) And we've tried to buy companies larger than us before. And there's a mental block there. Like same as what you had, we're like, well, can I do this? They're bigger. And you have to get over that. But what I found was not just the mental block, but the ego of this other guy, the guy who is bigger, they don't want to be the bigger company that's bought by the smaller company. That's right. That's the most direct pushback I've received. Like there was a company we were doing 4 million a year. And this other company was doing seven or eight, so it was double. But still, like in the grand scheme of things, $8 million is just not that much money. Like really. Like, yeah, you're double, but we're all still small. Right, exactly. <laughs> and we approached them because they're a great company. We would have loved that. Like buy them, it would have been transformative. And they were like, well, I can't sell to you. You're smaller. And I'm like, well, I have the money. Right. So because I would imagine that that's the biggest problem. And yeah, they just weren't able to get over that mental hump. Yeah. How did you get through that? You know, it takes a strong leader on the other side too, right? To get over that ego block, you know, a couple of things happened. I think that really helped. Number one, when we said, okay, we're going to try this. I had developed a strong relationship by this point with the other CEO and we got along really well. There was trust there. So when I called him, it's not like this kind of was I mean, it was happening out of the blue that we were sort of shifting the table, but at least our relationship wasn't brand new. One of the things that we had done over time that worked well was we really spent a lot of time cultivating relationships with CEOs in our space. And you know, these were competitors in a lot of ways, but it didn't matter, right? We knew each other. You know, I would try to do quarterly calls and things like that you know, with them. And there was a foundation for the relationship there. The other thing that I think really helped a lot was, you know, when we decided to go down this path, I had from a previous exit that I had, I had developed a great friend who's today one of my closest friends who was a partner in a larger growth equity VC out in the Bay Area. And I had called him when we started going down this path. And I said, hey, Eric, you know, here's this idea we have. Do you have any interest at all in even thinking about this? And, you know, his name is Eric Jack, and he's just a brilliant, brilliant, wonderful human being. And it took Eric about three minutes, you know, for Eric to say to me, yeah, yeah, let's go do this. Right. And and that was it. So I think, you know, the other thing that helped was if it were just us coming in and saying, hey, you know, we want to do this transaction, it probably would have been a lot harder. But then we also had this large growth VC coming in with us to say, okay, but really what's kind of happening here is we're going to take this, we're going to take this, we're going to put them together. And then yes, this company, the CEO is going to come from, you know, from the smaller company. Yes, the entire management coming from it or most of the management. But it doesn't matter. We're kind of 
putting these things together. So I think, you know, if there were ego concerns there, I think that that's probably, you know, what really helped them. We had that sort of third party, right? Yeah. You got validation. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'd imagine that'd be pretty helpful. I know aside from just the CEO coming from the smaller team, the management team too, because that was going to be our plan too. And I think that was probably the bigger concern, which is like, well, how can you, you know, figure out how to manage this? And Yeah. We did actually combine management teams a lot. So there were a lot of senior leaders that actually came over. There's no way. I mean, we were 15 people, myself, my COO at the time, and, you know, like one or two other people were really going to be leading this thing, but we had to have their leadership team, most of their leadership team with us. They didn't all end up staying, but most of them ended up staying for a while. And, you know, that was really instrumental. So to your point, we could not have run this company had their entire leadership team step away. So we really had to treat this as, hey, we're going out and we're building a brand new company together. But we also then at that point, we rebranded the company, right? So we didn't take either company name. We went out and I think one of the big things that we did too early on, you know, we just, we had a few people in the company who were just really brilliant and really defining core values, new core values and shared values and really defining what the culture would be moving forward as a brand new entity. And I think that helped tremendously and kind of holding the pieces together. And over time, like I said, people did end up kind of migrating away because it was a very different business. I mean, we were going from essentially a consulting business to a high growth SaaS, enterprise SaaS play, but they didn't in the beginning. And that made all the difference in the world. Yeah. So you said it was transformative. Aside from the obvious, can you just walk me through like what made it so transformative? Well, we immediately went from a small upstart player to you know, a more significant player at scale in our space. So just size alone made a big difference. I think what it also did was it positioned us. You know, We had this kind of roll-up strategy that we were putting in place, and it gave us instant credibility as being a real high potential buyer for somebody. So instead of us trying to get people to believe that, hey, we could go do this, we were a highly credible buyer at that point that could execute on the transaction. So I think that helped tremendously. The culture of the company shifted dramatically. The leadership of the company, I mean, there was not a single thing that was not untouched, right? The word you're looking for is broke. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, some of it, we just tried to, you know, we broke everything and some of it we got lucky and we fixed quickly. And some stuff we sort of labored under for, for years. Yeah. So who were the biggest players? Like, where were you at in the size range of the largest players? In the assessment space, we suddenly, because these were, you know, you're talking hundreds of companies that were probably a couple million dollars in revenue. And then you probably had five to 10 that were sort of, call it north of maybe 30 million, right? Nobody that was even a hundred million at that point. Now there are, but nobody that was even a hundred million at that point. So the entire industry itself was super fragmented. So even being a $10 million player, you broke out of that pool at the bottom, right? We were immediately kind of viewed as a larger player in the space, even at $10 million, just a really fragmented industry. That's fascinating. That's probably a lot like my industry too. Before COVID, that would have been the same. It's different now. Just in the last two years, they've rolled up the industry so much. You know, there's billion dollar plumbing companies now, right. <laughs> which is crazy. But yeah, two years ago, that didn't exist. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it's the same kind of thing, right? It's like, you've got just a million different people with a service model, right? So, you know, you know, when you have that, there's just this kind of economies of scale that can really hit, you know, and that's what we were doing. Fascinating. All right. So what was your personal transformation like going from, you took over a team four times your size. How'd you approach that as a leader? That was crazy. You know, I have always prided myself on being a founder. I'm a startup guy, right? I love the early stage. I love the dirtiness of a startup. I love the passion behind and the raw energy behind trying to take something from zero to a dollar, right? And, you know, here I was running something much larger. And I think, you know, the personal transformation was enormous, you know, and I had some great mentors, you know, Eric, Jack, who I mentioned, Martin Babinick, who would just, the fact that these guys hung in there with me and coached me was, you know, I remember suddenly I'm in this world, right, where, you know, I've got to learn real leadership and real management, not startup founder leadership and management, right? Which is like, hey, we're all in this together. We're all in the bunker. We're just trying to survive. 
And I also had some people on our executive team when we combined the companies, you know, the executive team that we combined with. There were a couple, just you know, a few, just very, very mature leaders there. Who, man, I mean, you talk about being egoless. They took me as their leader under their wing and taught me how to be a CEO, which was crazy, you know, that they would have done that, but they did. And you know, it was just it's something I'll never forget. I remember back, John, at the early days. You know, this was we were growing this business, and now all of a sudden, I had a large VC behind me, and we would go on board meetings, and I would have no idea what anybody was talking about. I mean, the first couple of board meetings, I literally would have no idea. They were using terms I had never heard before, right? Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. All, everybody was either Harvard or Stanford. There was no, <laughs> it was like one, one coast or another, <laughs> and here's me, right? And I would literally, I would write stuff down. Like I would hear words and I'd try to like write them down and like hyphenate them in a way that I could actually Google them afterward. I mean, that's literally how I was learning, like, you know, terms that today, you know, we all use, you know. I didn't know what CAC was, right? Customer acquisition cost. I didn't know what you know LTV was. I didn't know how to calculate these things. I didn't know any of this stuff, right? And you know, trying to write these things down and just Google them as fast as I could, and just trying to immerse myself in the learning of it as fast as I possibly could. And thank God, I just had people that were incredibly patient, you know, with me and were willing to teach me. And I think so much of the founder's journey is like that, right? It's you just go through these massive, massive learning experiences, right? And some of them work out well, some of them work out horribly, but they all just kind of, it's like learning inside of a tidal wave. Yeah. Well, it's a total shift. I think it's an underappreciated or maybe under-discussed, yeah. but it's a total shift. Like who you are fundamentally has to change in a really short amount of time. Oh my God. And you can either do it or you can't. Do uh, it. Totally. And you talk about like imposter syndrome and all of these things, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, you're suddenly in this spot and it's like, I don't, like, what in the hell? Like, mm-hmm. how did I get myself into this? And how do these people not see me for not knowing what the hell I'm doing? And the answer was they knew I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> <laughs> but they knew I could do it. And that's the thing, right? It's like, you just have to invest in a leader. And we just, you know, even today in our venture firm and things like that, you just, it's okay. You know, it's okay not to know stuff. It's fine. You be a hundred percent transparent and hundred percent comfortable about it, but you better damn well learn it fast. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've had guests on your podcast, which I don't think we've plugged yet, but you said the name. It was The Founder's Journey. The Founder's Journey podcast. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Check out Greg's show. And it sounds like it's about this. It's just sort of the transformation personally and professionally of a CEO. That's it. I mean, that's exactly what we try to do with it is have founders on to tell their story of how they got to where they got, whether that's good. You know, we've had founders on that were monumental successes and, you know, in a financial sense, right? And we've also had founders on that built things and lost every bit of it and are now rebuilding it. But just the power and the lessons that you learn along the way, you know, I mean, they're life-changing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that when I think on the last five years, so we've engaged in my career has been M&A and it didn't mean to start that way, but that's sort of what happened. Yep. <laughs> so it sounds like you and I should happened. hang out. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But it was fascinating. Just There's these just so clear windows of change. And I'm still in the middle of one now going from sort of how you described your transformation with that large deal. That's what I'm in the middle of too, where we four times last year and we did it in about five months. So not one day like you, but we got to doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) The time frame on that doesn't matter. It's it's still monumental. You're doing it. I'm still figuring like, I'm sure I will be for a while. Like this is, you know, because now for the first time, instead of just having the title of CEO, like I actually have to be that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it's funny the way that happens when, when like, you know, you wake up one morning, it's like, oh, I actually shit. Like, yeah, this, is, this is like a real job. I don't know how I, yeah, I got that. I job, did it. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's been a funny journey. Who else is coming on the show? Can you walk us through some of the founders that you've had on the show? Yeah, this morning we actually come up on this Friday. We had Barrett O'Neill came on this morning. You and I both know from Twitter and he's a prolific writer on Twitter, but also has just an incredible entrepreneurial story himself, getting into the storage business, the on-demand storage business and the lessons he's learned along the way, not only from that, but also from building an audience and community and really leveraging that as kind of his next venture. This is like my podcast day. So we interviewed Barrett this morning for one that goes live this Friday. Then you and I are obviously speaking this afternoon. 
We're recording another podcast with Dave Klein. Dave was the former head of talent over at Bridgewater with Ray Dalio's hedge fund. So incredibly accomplished guy who's really just an absolute management and leadership guru. You know, we'll be talking about, you know, leadership and management for startups and, you know, for founders that really like you and I, John, right? That sort of suddenly, okay, now I'm running a larger company. Like, what do I do? Nobody really ever taught me to manage, right? Now I've got to do it. We've had, you know, one of my recent, well, we had Martin Babinick, who you and I have talked about a couple of times. His just went live last week. So you can find that on Spotify or YouTube today under the Founder's Journey. Prior to that, we had a fellow by the name of Joe Tassone, who's just got an incredibly fascinating sort of, you know, story where he came in, he bootstrapped the company to 25 million in the cellular tower space of all things, completely fell apart rebuilt it. I mean, just an incredible story of what real resilience looks like for a founder. So great podcast there. Yeah. Why are you doing a podcast? I love these stories. (laughs) Look, I've been really fortunate in my career. And when I left my role as CEO, what I wanted to do was devote my time to working with founders and CEOs at an earlier stage who are going through the same things that I was are dealing with all the same emotions, are dealing with all the same highs and lows and the drama of the journey. And to try to make their lives a little bit, and we can make their companies more successful, that's great. But to try to make their lives a little bit calmer, because mine wasn't, you know, and it was crazy, crazy, crazy ride. And I sacrificed a lot for that ride, right? And, you know, so what I want to devote myself to doing was helping founders just you know, build great companies, but do it without compromising their entire life. And that's it. So, you know, that's why we started our VC fund so we can invest behind some of these. That's why I started the podcast. I've got a newsletter and, you know, I spend probably half of my day today writing on Twitter to tell those stories. And because I love this stuff and now I'm, you know, I'm doing some coaching of individual founders now and things like that. And we'll continue to do some coaching. It's just, this is where my passion is. This is what I love to do more than anything. I love founders. I love the creativity and the energy and the passion behind what they're trying to do. And I, I want to be a part of it. I just don't want to go do it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that part I get. So for founders that are maybe in the middle, so I, this is selfish. This is a selfish question, by the way. <laughs> it's okay. I'm going to lay out a scenario. It could be me. It could be anybody. I don't know. But <laughs> if you've got founder CEOs. I know, sort I know of, a guy. You just start off with that. Yeah, I know a guy. I, I know this guy. <laughs> really great guy. And they're sort of in the middle of that transformative journey that you went through, that I'm going through, of transitioning between founder to that of a full CEO. What resources do you think that they should be going to, to get that, you know, there's not like a college class on how to be a CEO and there's probably a book or two, but yeah, they're under talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Find a peer group, right? I've been a member of YPO for a number of years before that I was a member of EO for almost a decade. You know, getting that peer group is so, so important. You know, the journey that this hypothetical guy that we're talking about is going through right now can be a really great only one. Right. And you know, and it's not one that most people can identify with. I'd find a peer group. You know, Vistage is a great one. YPO is a great one. YEO is a great one, depending on you know the size of the company, things like that. I think that's where I would definitely start. Get a coach. You know, I used a coach through almost all of that time because you know what I wanted was access to somebody who just who I could call up and say, okay, here's what's happening. I don't know what the hell to do about this. And, you know, when I got the advice and I just fell by the name of Mike Klaus and Mike is just a brilliant guy He's with CEO Coaching International is a great organization. And, you know, Mike is just a brilliant, he was a very senior executive in a number of roles and he's a guy I could just call. So, you know, whether it's Mike or it's CEO Coaching International, it's YPO or YEO, or, which is now EO or Vistage, get a coach, get a peer group, right? Because you need that resource to be able to call on. You can't learn this stuff from a book, right? There's good books out there on, you know, but you can't learn this stuff from a book because when you're in it, the drama is too much, right? You need the person to call. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. We had coaches for a while. For some reason, we haven't had one for like about a year, which also happened to be, you know, one of the single most transformative years in my entire career. (laughs) So that probably wasn't a good choice. (laughs) But yeah, I agree. They were a wonderful resource while we had them. Yeah. Yeah. Big fan of coaching and big fan of peer groups. Like just, you've got to get yourself surrounded by people, you know, who have gone through something like this before, because not many people have, right? 
And that's really more than anything else, I think, was most instrumental to me. I mean, yes, there's good books and management books and theory and stuff like that out there, but until you're living it, you know, it's hard to kind of deal with on your own. Yeah. I appreciate that. All right. What is your single biggest challenge right now? I would say this is a big transition for me, right? I'm coming out of a 13-year-old CEO and I have not been a solo entrepreneur for, you know, and that's really, look, I'm still an entrepreneur, right? I have a VC, but we're starting a VC firm. And and I say I'm solo. I mean, we're all kind of freelancers in this thing, right? And I, in many ways at 49 years old, am kind of redefining my life and, you know, my professional life. And, you know, I've got a wonderful family and an incredibly supportive wife and, but I'm really kind of transforming everything that I've known about myself for the last, for my entire professional career into something different right now. So I think it's exciting. I'm loving every second of it, but it's a real transformation. So I don't know if you would call that a challenge, but because it's a lot of stuff in there to kind of figure out, right? Like, what do I want to do with the next 10, 15 years? And I'm doing those things now, but how do I start to do this at scale, right? How do I start to provide coaching for you know, great founders and CEOs at scale. You know, how do I really, you know, start to take this passion for sort of educating around these issues of the founder's journey and how do I do it to scale? And it's been very new, you know, you and I connected through Twitter, I know for the first time, and that's been a really new journey for me in terms of building, you know, my kind of Twitter audience and engaging with them. So there's just everything in my life is new right now, which is just a wild experience. <laughs> for yeah. Time, you know? Yeah. I would have to imagine. So, you know, we're talking about transitions. I think the transition you're going through is way harder than transitioning from like a small CEO to a big CEO. Like, I don't know. It's a lot because there's so much more personal to it. There is. So, you know, there's self-worth and how you think about yourself and your career and how that ties in. And that's a lot going on there. There that's is. A big one. There, yeah. There's definitely a lot to dissect in your own brain, right? You really do have to, it takes a while to kind of separate yourself from the business that yeah. you built. And you know, emotionally sort of make that disconnect, right? In a lot of ways, it's the most exciting period I've ever gone through in my entire life and my career, right? Because really I can go do anything I want to do at this point. But in some ways, you know, that's sort of it's the curse of too many choices, right? <laughs> and yeah, oh yeah. You know, really getting narrowed down. I spent a lot of time in the very beginning, you know, in October, like I was like, oh, I could go do this, I can go do that, I could be a travel blogger. That was like my big thing for a while, right? I love to travel. Right? It could have been good. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> there's all kinds of cool stuff you can go do until you know it just took me a while to kind of narrow down to know what I want to do is I want to provide coaching. I want to share my experience in a way that's meaningful to other founders. But now I've got to figure out actually, you know, how to continue to do that at scale. Yeah. That's a huge challenge. I appreciate you sharing it. I appreciate you sharing everything you did today. This was awesome. And now I just want to connect with you and come out to Denver and ski. I mean, anytime, anytime Denver skiing or Montana fishing. I don't know if you're a fisherman, but I'm sitting about a half a mile from the Yellowstone river and some of the best fly fishing in the world up here. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah, we'd love to do it anytime, John. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on today, Greg. This was fantastic. Thanks for having me. I really do appreciate it. 